Uh, so growing up, welcome, glad you're here this evening. Growing up, uh, we lived, well, at first we lived in town at uh, Bill Sportsman Service. You can still see the place today. My youngest brother runs the shop now and um, owns it and runs it. And, uh, but, uh, and, and in the back, we had this huge garden, right? Gigantic garden, but I don't remember that garden quite as well, although I do remember that garden. But then we lived out in the country, and we moved to this little community that used to be called, or is still called, Rossburg. It was a, it was a railway community, and we lived right in the city limits of Rossburg, even though there was really no city limits there. At any rate, down the road was this guy by the name of Porkchop Pete, okay? And Porkchop Pete was, what kind of farmer do you think Porkchop Pete was? Yeah, hog farmer. Okay, and so anyway, he had the, he had this like belly on him, right? And so and so he would ride snowmobile, and he had these uh, what is Polaris? Was it a Colt? Colt Polaris? He'd ride the, and and because he was kind of he was a squat guy, big guy. At any rate, so he would he would ride it, and he would like wear these like. Uh, you know, kind of like the jersey fabric zip up with a hood thing going on, and uh, and he would like wear four or five of them, okay? And the and the top one would be zipped to here, but then the next one would be zipped to here, and then here and here and here. It was just like this cascading look. At any rate, so one year, pork chop peep wanted to repay my dad, who had helped him out financially in a difficult situation, and so uh, um, pork chop peep wanted to give my dad a, a pig, and. My dad's like, Pete, you don't have to do that. Bill, I insist. Okay, sounds good. Come over, pick up your pig. So we go over, and my Pete's like, which pig do you want? And my dad's like, okay, well, I'll take that pig. Pete's like, okay, sounds good. And Pete walks into the pig pen with a 22. Okay, so sorry for some of you if you're squeamish. But if you ate meat tonight, that came from real food. And so Pete walks up to the pig and shoots the pig in the head. The pig shook its head and started chasing Porkchop Pete around the pen. I mean, he was just like mad, right? Because he missed. And a pig's head is obviously quite dense. So he lived out the country, had this great big farm, rather. And we were just a little bit south of Porkchop Pete. We could see his yard light from ours about a mile away. And, um, and we had this garden that was probably not much smaller than this room, okay? And I hated I hated the garden, okay? We had nine or ten rows of onions. We had nine or ten rows of potatoes. We had three or four rows of carrots. We had beans. We had peas. We had a separate garden for fruit, um, berries. We had a separate garden for viney things like cucumbers and squash and watermelons. We had five apple trees. We had raspberry bushes. And I, but what my dad would do in the fall, right, is he would go to the local... Uh, um, pig farmer, not pig farmer, but turkey farmer, and we had this, uh, it was kind of like a, if you think of a ton and a half uh, pickup truck with uh, the cab cut off, made into a trailer. You've seen this, right? That makes sense, right? You know what that is, right? And so he would take that over with his little uh, uh, McCormick and Deering tractor and pick up a load of turkey stuff and then spread it over the garden because he wanted what? Good soil. Because if you plant in good soil, you get a better result. Our text tonight starts uh, kind of where we left off last week in chapter 12 and then kind of embarks into this new area. And so we'll jump. The first question that we might want to ask is why do we include this anecdote? Okay, 12, 46 through 50. 
while he was still speaking to the people, Jesus, okay, while he's still speaking to the people, Jesus is queried by an individual who says, hey, your mom and brothers are outside and they want to have a word with you. Intriguing that the people that would be arguably closer or closest to Christ are on the outside looking in. To some degree, maybe it sums what has happened over the last chapter, that the people who should know better don't. The people who should know better are on the outside. And while we can indict the brothers right here, and we can say question mark on the mom, we know that Mary is present at the crucifixion, right? And we know that by Acts chapter 1, we find the brothers along with Mary, their mother, Jesus' mother, along with the disciples, waiting in expectancy for the work and the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is told, your family is here, and Jesus asks the question, who is my family? And it's intriguing that the distinction is not about blood. Now, Matthew goes through great pains in Matthew chapter 1 to identify Christ, okay, in a very specific bloodline, okay? It is integrally important to the work of Christ that he be identified not only as a Jew, but as a Jew from the line of Judah, and specifically King David's offspring, right? And so it's intriguing that for a book where blood is so important, Jesus here says blood isn't important at all. You want to know who my family is? It's this bunch of Yahoo fishermen. It's these bunch of tax collectors. It's the marginalized. But he doesn't even say that. We know that's the description of the individuals. What he says is, what? You want to know who my family is? It's not about blood. It's about activity. Whoever does the will of my Father. We have this patriarchal society, property being passed from father to son, blood relatives. And even in this, Jesus is upsetting the apple cart, right? That familyhood with Jesus is not determined by the blood or the type of blood that courses through your veins, but by doing. Being identified with Jesus Christ in executing the will of the Father. Being identified not by blood, but by activity. How do you choose the people that you're friends with? How do you choose your family? You may smile at that, saying you can't choose your family, eh, but you kind of can. I love this story. Uh, a friend of Tanya's father 
um, had family in Michigan, and um, this was a number of, number of years ago. Yeah, at any rate, and the guy was maybe a little bit, you know, borderline, you know, on the spectrum, that kind of vibe. And so he had left um, Super Value to go home for, for Christmas, and, um, and he gets home for Christmas. And it's like the day after Christmas, okay? It's a 26th, right? And Bill's in the office because Bill liked to work between Christmas and New Year's because there wasn't many people in the office, and he could get a lot of stuff done, and there wasn't anyone breathing down his neck. And in walks his friend, and his friend was like, Bill was a little surprised, said, I thought you were in Michigan, you know? Mitten Park, not the Upper Peninsula. I thought you were in Michigan, you know? And he's like, yeah, I was sitting there Christmas Eve, and I was just looking around at my family, and I was kind of thinking, would I be friends with any of these people if they weren't my family? And he's like, I decided, no. I wouldn't be. So I got up and left. <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? I'm out. Peace out. Merry Christmas. You can keep the presents. How do you choose your friends? How do you choose your family? How do you choose the people that are important to you? What's the most important thing in choosing a friend? Is it that you like them and they like you? Or is it more important if you like Jesus and they like Jesus? Because I would submit to you, you and I, can be best friends if we love Christ more than we love each other. And again, it's not about the blood that's in our veins. And loving Christ is doing the will of the Father. In fact, I would argue when there are threats to the unity among people who are followers of Jesus Christ, it's because I elevate how much I like you or how much you like me over how much I love Christ. Because if I love Christ more than I love you, and if you love Christ more than you love me, then I would submit that we could be the very best of friends. And to some degree, we may not even like each other. At any rate, doing the will of the Father, it's not a high-minded, academically rigorous thing. It's doing, it's getting the job done. It's just doing what they're told to do, right? Doing the will of the Father. And that is that wonderful, simple statement that is far from simplistic. What is the will of the Father? We have people that wrestle with that question, right? Have you ever thought, what is God's will in this situation? Should I stay? Should I go? Should I move? Should I remain? Should I do this? Should I take that job? Should I buy this car? Should I sell that car? Should I live here? Should I live there? What is God's will? 
at any rate, something for you to think on. For Jesus, it wasn't a complicated proof that he belonged to the tribe of Judah, that he was a descendant of King David. Not a complicated thing, but an exclusive thing. But here Jesus is saying, really anyone, even you, even me, can be a part of God's family. Jumping into 13, perhaps one of the most familiar of the parables Chapter 13 articulates seven different parables. None, perhaps, is explained quite as exhaustively as the parable of the sower. Listen, page 818, if you want to follow along. That same day, Jesus went out of the house, sat beside the sea, and a great crowds gathered around him. So they got into the boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. There is a word of warning here. Jesus uses this to a powerful, powerful advantage, being on the water and speaking. If you're on the water, don't assume that you're having a private conversation. Just didn't. Everyone can hear you. Not that there's, I've overheard anyone here, but I've overheard people. Word of warning, summer's just around the corner. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, sixty, some thirty. Who who has ears, let him hear. We know this one, right? And can you imagine the Pharisees, you know? Okay, they've heard so many rumors about this, this Jesus who's doing all these miraculous things and how the crowds are following him. And so they're like, you know, they send out a group of guys. They're like, okay, go check this guy out. What is he doing? Okay, and this is the first thing that some of them hear. Okay, forgive the poetic license I'm exhibiting because obviously they're engaging some of the Pharisees. But, but say they're sitting and listening to this and they're just like, this guy's supposed to be the Messiah? I mean, this is just like kind of agricultural advice. Not much more than that. This is like pork chop Pete giving you a pig. You know, it's just like what they're, okay, probably not pork chop Pete because that would have been a violation of a Jewish thing, right? So you understand what I'm saying though, right? It doesn't work exactly. And then if you have ears, hear this. Pharisees reporting back. Really, I don't, I, there's nothing special here. Nothing special at all. Even the disciples say, why do you speak in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given. He will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you indeed hear but never understand, you indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull and with their eyes they can barely hear, 
and their ears have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and churn, and I would heal them. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, your ears, for they hear, for truly I say to you. And then he explains the parable, right? And we know it, right? We know it very, very well. Okay, we, we know that, that the path, okay, the seed that gets scattered on the path, okay, that's, it's not going to penetrate the path. It's not going to grow, okay? It's, it's hard to the world. It's, 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 the soil is not receptive. It is not, it's not a place where you want to spread a lot of seed. Uh, a farmer probably in the first century only would have scattered seed on a hard path by accident. You know, if you imagine the imagery of, of you know, kind of this broadcast, you know, reaching into a sack and throwing out seed and it hitting and, you know, kind, and some of it just kind of hits the pathway that may have gone in between two fields. You wouldn't put a lot of seed there. And then you have the rocky, right? Okay. And you have the rocky, which is shallow, right? Shallow soil, where the top soil looks like it might hold something, but, but there's really not much there. So you might, that kind of activity might be closer to an outcropping. Again, you probably wouldn't throw a lot of seed there. The thorny soil, the person inside of me wants to say, well, just why don't you pull out the thorns? <laughs> You know, that just do a little weeding. I hated weeding. I hated it. And I was a sloppy weeder. If I had been a good weeder, I only would have had to weed like once a month, okay? But because I was a sloppy weeder, and rather than pull them out by their roots, I would just like break them off, right? And then after the next rainstorm, they'd grow back up, you know, get back out. Weed the onions, weed the potatoes, weed the beans. I hated that. The rocky and thorny soil have this special call out, right? The rocky ground, this is one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. But he has no root in himself, endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. At least one of our commentators argued that immediately he falls away probably isn't a strong enough translation. A stronger, better translation might be literally he is offended. He is offended by the good news. Adversity comes into life and it's not just, it's just like, no, that is like, garbage. That is nonsense. You've got to be kidding me. Who in the world would believe that? For the one who, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, the cares of the word, the deceitfulness, riches of the world, choke the word, proves to be unfaithful, right? And then the good soil. This is the one who hears the word and understands it, Indeed, bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold. In some ways, you know this as well as I know this. This is familiar. The text is explained in detail exactly what it means. You don't need a commentator for the first few verses, and then verses, what would it be, 18 through 23. And so largely, the duty of this task lies in what are the implications for us today? How do we apply this text to our lives. How does it make sense? And to that, I think we have some things that we can work with. Why parables? 
the disciples say, why, why do you speak in parables? Parables weren't uncommon. It was a common rhetorical device in the first century. Is it about a secret code? Is it that they, the Pharisees, were prohibited from knowing? So this was something that was just for the secret insiders of Jesus? And the Pharisees were prohibited from knowing? Or was it that their sense of self precluded them from being willing to learn from someone who came from Nazareth and told agricultural stories? Every once in a while, someone will ask me the question, why do we tell so many stories at Timberwood Church? Because it's what Jesus did. Stories are memorable. Stories convey the sense of what's going on. And no, this isn't about agriculture. No, this isn't a detailed exploration of what it was like to farm in the first century. Jesus is saying, no, this is, this is what this thing looks like. The Word of God goes out. The good news goes out. And here's how it lands. And the Pharisees don't see it, right? They would rather be right than get it right. This kind of ties into something that Eric talked about last week that I think is just critical for us to understand. And, and to be sure, I want to be in the camp. Sometimes it takes me a little bit longer to get there, okay, depending upon what the issue is. But I want to be in the camp of getting it right rather than being right. That is my heart's cry. I really don't care if I'm right. I kind of care a little bit. I kind of care a little bit. But I really don't care if I'm right, if I can get it right. And the Pharisees were a group of people that they were so certain of their right and righteousness. That was the most important thing to me, them. They needed to be the smartest people in the room. I don't need to be the smartest person in the room. In my family, I'm the dumbest person in my family. I'm in fourth place out of four. That's a good place for me to be. It keeps me from having to be right. It keeps me in this position of, for a fancy word, epistemological modesty. Modesty in what I think I know. If there's one thing you hear, don't try to be right. Don't try to be right. Try to get it right. The Pharisees were unwilling to get it right. They were so certain. Eric talked about this this last week, right? So certain of what they knew. So certain of their training. And they were sophisticated. They, they knew the Bible as we understand their understanding of the Bible, the Old Testament, the Torah, the prophets, the poetry books, they understood it. And yet they didn't. What's more valuable for us, to get it right or to be right? Again, they and their lack of understanding 
Is it because they won't ask the question, has God made them this way? Or are they this way because God gave them the ability to have self-determination and personal agency? You know which way I drop on that discussion. I'm much more of a, no, God has granted us the ability to choose. And when we walk away from God, yeah, the text describes it as a hard heart, describes it as eyes that see but don't hear, ears that hear but don't understand. To have the ears that hear and the eyes that see accurately. How to get it right rather than be right. How to see accurately. How to avoid the trap of having so much confidence in what you know that in essence you're wrong. How not to be the guy who sees the world incorrectly. How not to be the gal who sees the world incorrectly. When I wipe out, and I often wipe out, it's often about decisions that are made on the fly. It's often about uh, an, an instantaneous response in a given situation. It's often when, when someone's saying something, okay, and they're in the middle of saying something, and I'm like, ooh, I know the answer to this one. It's often when I make a decision in haste. It's often when I make a decision without consulting others. Do you know that there are very few decisions that you will ever make in life that have to so be made in, in the urgency of the moment that you, that you don't have time to ask someone else? So few. So few. Like, like pardon? Such as, okay, one, like if I fall over right now, okay, like, don't ask someone run for an AED, okay, and someone grab their fist and start hitting my chest and say, live, 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 live. I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Okay, that's not a decision. Just do it, okay? I really want to live. Although if I don't make it, it's not going to break my heart to say goodbye. Apart from that, apart from that, there's not many decisions that I will make in my life that I won't be afforded the time to check it out with someone else. Decisions in which I think I'm the smartest person in the room. Decisions in which I hold up my hand and I so want to give the right answer. And obviously, there are shades to all of these things. And I'm not saying that we don't have a good understanding of what we believe and why we believe it. I'm not saying that we're saying, oh, I don't know. Is Jesus the Son of God? I have no idea. No, I'm not saying that. Have you ever been in a situation where, where, where it would just seem like it was a secret that was, I mean, it's like, what's, What's going on here? 
Verse 11, and he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Have you ever been in a situation where you're like, I'm not quite sure what's going on here. I think I should just keep my mouth shut. Have you ever encountered something that seemed very secretive? I wonder if that still happens today. Secrets given and not given. Ever been stymied by something? But then rather than being comfortable with being stymied, you just launch into what you already know and you give the answer that you think you should give rather than keeping your mouth shut, which would probably be the thing that we should do, right? Again, we know what the text means. The challenge of the text lies in implication and application. And I would be the first to admit, the text is about the spreading of the Word of God for the first time. Spreading the Word of God, okay? Spreading the Word of God, telling people about Jesus Christ, the good news, going into all the world baptizing, without question. That is the primary focus of what Jesus is talking about. And people will respond to that message in all sorts of different ways. So don't be surprised if when we tell people about Jesus, they don't respond favorably. That shouldn't shock us. But also don't be surprised when people respond favorably. Because Jesus says that will also be true. But I think there's a clear implication from the text when we hear the Word of God as individuals, are we as individuals, when we hear the Word of God, a path, rocky ground, thorny ground, or good soil? Jesus says, blessed are your eyes. He's telling this group of disciples, blessed are your eyes for you see and your ears for you hear. For I truly say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see. It's kind of like longing to see the Vikings win in the playoffs. It's this deep-seated just, oh, wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be extraordinary? If you're a Cincinnati Bengals fan, which is an odd thing to me, you name your team after an animal that is notoriously solitary, a tiger. I get lions. I don't get tigers. Bengals. You're not paying for that. I'll let it go. For I truly say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Clearly, for what do I yearn? A hint, you'll find it in 1250. The parable has clear distinctions, right? Might there be shades of soil? Sure. And what, what level of our own personal responsibility are, are we persistent in not understanding something that allows us to become a better disciple? 
Or are we a better disciple, which then develops our persistence, right, to continue to pursue something? And it might be one of those chicken or an egg type discussions, although eggs are very expensive right now. Might there be shades of soil? And can that discussion help us? Could we aspire to be better soil? And again, is this a place for personal agency or do you get the soil that you get and you don't throw a fit? It's an inherently familiar parable. Jesus telling his disciples what it will be like when you tell people about me. Some will receive it, some won't. Some will come on like a ton of bricks, some won't. Some will come on like a ton of bricks, but then money gets in the way, worries get in the way, What kind of soil are we as followers of Jesus Christ? What kind of soil do we spread the message of Jesus Christ in and to? And can I change the condition of my own heart? And can I engage in a situation, right? Because the totality of people coming to Christ isn't discussed in this parable, right? In other places of the Bible, we see examples where, where, where someone plants the seed and then someone waters the seed and someone harvests the seed, right? And so we might encounter someone that we're like, we're not sure that they're going to be totally receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ, yet perhaps... The sales cycle, perhaps the growing cycle, is just longer. That we shouldn't be shocked when people don't respond well to the kingdom of God. And we shouldn't be surprised when we encounter opposition. Understand. But we should also understand that what is being sown in our lives is the greatest message that this world has ever seen. And we have the opportunity to sow the Word of God into not only our lives, but the lives of those that exist around us. Let me challenge you with this.
so shortly before I came up here um, in 2004, I um, did a missions trip with the last church that I worked at, and um, it was really a hard time for me in my life. I'd gone from being the fair-haired child, um, couldn't do anything wrong, to the red-headed stepson. Can I use that phrase? Is that still, is that okay? And couldn't do anything right. And some of that was my own doing. I did a lot of stupid things, but some of it was done to me. Um, at any rate, I take this trip to the Czech Republic, right? And we do this English camp, kind of like we did with Dan and Laura Hash in Poland. Same thing, we just did it in the Czech Republic. Same organization, actually, Josiah Venture. So I had opportunity, you know, the camp was along the Polish-Czech border, and, and so I had opportunity to, um, my only responsibility was to teach at night. And so during the day, I just went on, I just walked the mountains, walked the hills, I think God healed me. I think God gave me the courage to say, I need to move on. I think Tanya was ready 12 months earlier or 18 months earlier than I was, but like I said, I'm not the smartest person in our house. So before we went up to the camp and then after we came back from the camp, stayed with this host family in Ledovice, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, Prague, um, Prague, Czech, and small little town, and the, the town, uh, the church, had Sunday morning attendance, I suppose, of, I don't know, 75 people, 75 adults. And, but their youth group had 120 kids in the youth group. <laughs> You're like, well, that's kind of cool. And, and what their deal was is they had, they had 40 people that were like leaders in the youth group, okay? And to be a leader in the youth group, that meant that you had to have a disciple that you were meeting with on a consistent basis and inviting them to the youth group. And for that person to be your disciple, to qualify in addition to meeting with you and engaging, they had to have a friend that they were inviting to church on a frequent basis. Okay, so you, so you have the, the 40 leaders who have 40 followers, 40 disciples, right? And then the 40 disciples, okay, have 40 individuals, okay? And so all of a sudden you have, you just, I mean, the youth group was, you know, almost double the size of the church because they were just intentional about discipleship. So we're not into numbers, it's not a big deal, but what if, what if you started meeting with someone in the next two weeks? Someone that you know maybe goes to Timberwood, maybe doesn't go to Timberwood. You know they're a follower of Christ and you're like, hey, Let's move closer to God together. And then you meet with them a few times and you put out the challenge. Who's someone that you know in your sphere of influence that maybe knows Christ, maybe doesn't know Christ, marginally connected to church, whatever else? Do you know what I'm saying? Because like Eric said, you guys are here doing this and engaging with this, and it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's important to spend this time thinking and, and being challenged and just immersing and in community. And I'm willing to bet each and every one of us has a friend who would benefit from being in this space. Someone who is good soil, someone who we can invest our life into. And they have a friend who would be more than willing to invest in their life. Interesting, the host couple that I stayed with, um, 
So this was, what, 10 years after the wall fell. Kind of an interesting, I'm kind of into epilogues these days. I, I said, so it must be wonderful, right? Because you're now living in post-communist Czech Republic. And um, some of you I've told this story to. And, um, and they kind of said, yeah, yeah, it's not bad being free. You know, that was kind of the, the English didn't translate directly, but they spoke better English than I spoke Czech, and so that's the language we were using. And, and I was like, well, that, I mean, that just seemed kind of odd. And I said, can you, can you put more on that? And they said, well, you know, when we are under communist rule, um, you know, we had to be very careful because you know, never knew when you might end up in jail. Someone would report you, you'd end up in jail. And so you had to be very, very careful. And also, you had to take your, seriously, your commitment very, very seriously. And I'm like, that's interesting. And they're like, yeah, it's, now it's, it's, almost, it's almost too easy to be a Christian now. Back then, being a Christian meant something. Because if you were discovered to be a Christian, the threat was real that you would go to jail. And that interaction with that family that lived under communist rule for many, many years, has never left my brain. Followers of Christ, spreading the word of God. Where are we spreading the word of God? What kind of soil are we? Who is the sower? We're done. Go to your groups.